Hi, welcome to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. I'm Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, so that's 25 years at the time of this recording. You can read all of my written work there at my website. That's at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, if you're a fan of films of the 1980s, and I imagine that most people who are watching the film I'm going to be reviewing today are... I invite you to check out the link to my other podcast called Around the World in 80s Movies, where I do a really deep dive, although it's only a half hour usually per episode, into all of your favorite movies of the 1980s. You can find the link at my website. That's at quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into a sequel to a film that did come out in the 1980s and has remained very popular ever since it came out in 1988. The film I'm talking about today is Coming to America. Now, that has the same kind of pronunciation as its predecessor, Coming to America, but this one has the numeral 2 instead of a T-O in the middle of it. Trying to be clever there, I suppose. This one supposedly is a PG-13 rated film, although I personally think it could have been rated R. It does have crude and sexual content, language, and drug content. I personally thought it was more adult than the first film, but an hour and 50 minutes is the runtime. Eddie Murphy does come back. In fact, most of the cast of the original film do come back, but the newcomer here that also stars is Jermaine Fowler. Arsenio Hall, Leslie Jones, Tracy Morgan, Kiki Lane, Wesley Snipes, Sherry Headley, James Earl Jones. I mean, I could really go on for another half minute just discussing all of the different people that either have a small role or a cameo in this film. There are a lot of them. Craig Brewer this time is the director, not John Landis. The screenplay credited to Kenya Barris, Barry W. Blaustein, and David Sheffield. Now, Coming to America is the much-belated sequel. Obviously, one of Eddie Murphy's most popular starring vehicles from 1988, Coming to America. Here he's returning as Akeem Jaffer, the obscenely wealthy prince of this fictional African kingdom, Zamunda. He's living in bliss, really, now with his wife, Lisa. Of course, we saw him court Lisa in the first film. They now have three daughters, but their father is ailing, played by James Earl Jones. Akeem is set to become the king now of Zamunda, but that's going to leave their nation, which has only been ruled by men since time immemorial, no male heir. Now, General Izzy, played by Wesley Snipes, he's this warmongering leader of the neighboring country next Doria. He's come around to try to intimidate Akeem to granting a marriage between his son and Akeem's eldest daughter, Mika, played by Kiki Lane. But Akeem is soon informed that he may act- indeed have a son, an illegitimate one, conceived when he was sowing his wild oats in America 30 years prior, although he didn't think he did any sowing of wild oats until he met Lisa. Now, Akeem and his right-hand man, Semi, played by Arsenio Hall once again, they return to Queens, New York to find this now 31-year-old son and heir that Akeem did not know he had, this streetwise ticket scalper named Lavelle Johnson, played by Jermaine Fowler. Akeem flies out Lavelle and his mother, Mary, Mary played by Leslie Jones, out to Zamunda to receive his training and to perform tests of courage before he can be deemed the next prince. 
Now, appreciating this sequel to Coming to America, I think it really does necessitate being intimately familiar or at least watching recently the first film because there are constant callback moments here to the one that was directed by John Landis in 1988. If you love the first film, you're going to find a lot of the moments here pretty appealing, a lot of nostalgia here. If you're looking for something that goes beyond being more than a regurgitation of a lot of the jokes and a lot of the characters that you found funny in the first film, I think you're going to be disappointed here by this follow-up. You know, Every major joke, every character here is mostly a rehash from the original film. You have the same barbershop crew. They're still alive. They were really old in that original film. Somehow they're, they must be pushing 100 by now. They never seem to age, though. One-note characters like Imani Izzy, that that was the intended ride from the arranged marriage of the first film that Akeem told to hop around on one leg and bark like a dog. She's still doing it 30 years later here. Reconnecting with those familiar characters, that's kind of an amiable experience for many people to reconnect with these characters yet again, although most of them really haven't changed at all in those 30 years. It seems like their lives just went into coast mode between the last time we saw them and today. Even, uh, you know, the dance number that delighted in the first film that's brought back here, although it does occur much more often here, regular intervals. I think they're just trying to make use of Tiana Taylor being a performance artist in this film. Now, this sequel returns about as much of the original cast as possible. Some exceptions here are Eric LaSalle and Samuel L. Jackson because they were busy doing other things and were not available. Madge Sinclair, who plays Akeem's mother in the first film, The Queen. Unfortunately, she passed away in the mid-1990s and also, obviously, was not going to appear here. But Eddie Murphy's back, Arsenio Hall, John Amos, James Earl Jones, Louis Anderson even is in this film. And the actor, I think, that probably aged the best of them all. She barely looks a day older than we remember her, Sherry Headley, as Akeem's wife and Zamunda's next queen, Lisa. Newcomers here, Wesley Snipes as General Izzy, the ruler of the neighboring country, Kiki Lane, I think is very appealing here also as Akeem's brave oldest daughter, Mika. She obviously is set up to be a strong leader for Zamunda, if not for its patriarchal adherence. Obviously, that's something that's going to be addressed in this film. Although this has mostly a black cast coming to America, also has a white director, once again, at the helm, Craig Brewer, much like John Landis directed the first film. Craig Brewer, though, has a lot of cred for making films that do feature African-Americans. Hustle and Flow is a film he directed, Black Snake Moan also, and the acclaimed made-for-Netflix film that he did just before this with Eddie Murphy called Dolomite Is My Name. Now, the impetus for this sequel actually came from a black director, Ryan Coogler. Ryan Coogler happened to be, as many people are growing up, a big fan of Coming to America. He approached Eddie Murphy because he had an idea of how to follow up Coming to America. He approached him back in 2016. His idea was to focus on Akeem's son, who he thought could be played by his favorite go-to actor, Michael B. Jordan, who would follow in his father's footsteps by sowing his wild oats in America just before taking a wife. Murphy, though, felt this seemed like more of a remake. It wasn't really a sequel. And the original characters, like Akeem and all of the rest that people would be coming back for, would be mostly relegated to supporting players or mostly out of the film. So Murphy countered that the movie should instead have Akeem returning to Queens to find the son that he didn't know he had. But Kugler thought that that was 
really an implausible storyline. And by then, he had moved on to Black Panther, which shares many similar themes to Coming to America. Now, Murphy knew over the years, Coming to America somehow, unlike any of his other films, had really stuck around in popular culture, unlike any of his other movies, even ones that made more money than Coming to America. The costumes, the lines, the characters, they have lived on and on, especially in the African-American community. And there has always been talk about trying to bring it back, whether it's in a sequel form or making it into a theatrical play or maybe a show on TV, but it's always kind of been around as something that potentially could continue on. A sequel did kick around at Paramount for a long time, but Murphy and most of those involved just began to think that this was really a one-and-done story. It's a fairy tale. It didn't really need its ending ruined by trying to continue it on and on and on. So... But now Murphy, who had this idea now of how to continue on his story by having Akeem go to America to look for the son he didn't know he had, Murphy decided, well, actually, maybe he should develop this into a potential story. He brought his idea to the original Coming to America screenwriters, Barry Blaustein and David Sheffield. And these writers met with Murphy at his home many times over the next couple of months before they decided to rent an apartment nearby once it looked like it was a lock and to work on this new script full-time. Now, in the early drafts, Murphy really had Tracy Morgan in mind to play the son. Arsenio Hall, though, when he heard about this, he thought, well, that's not going to work. M Morgan was far too old. He was over 50 years old. He was not going to be believable as Akeem's 30-year-old son, and besides, Morgan is just a few years shy of being Murphy's age. So in 2017, things started to heat up. Jonathan Levine was attached to direct. Blackish creator Kenya Barris was brought in to try to punch up the script and the some of the dialogue to give it much more modern cred and many more insights. Now, Barris had originally turned it down because he thought, you know, Coming to America, one of his favorite films, it really was not something he wanted to touch to try to rekindle the same quality. That seemed like an impossible battle. But then he read the script and he felt like, wow, this was actually a pretty good idea. He felt like he had to do it at that point. Now, there were a lot of things that changed over time, over the course of drafting and redrafting this into a movie. There were story angles that were put in and then they were taken out. For instance, one idea they had was to make the barbershop denizens, those old guys at the barbershop, they were going to be shown wearing MAGA hats and to be hardcore Republicans. Not necessarily for Trump, they happen to be Herman Cain fans, and they found this pretty funny, but they thought that the film, if they put that in there, it was going to be too topical. It would not date well. Indeed, by the way, Herman Cain died in 2020, so that really would have made this incredibly dated by the time it was released in March of 2021. Now, they also had some scenes in mind. They had like two goat herders who get into an argument because one had sex with the other's goat, but they determined at some point to keep things much more classy when they got James Earl Jones to get on board to return. Even though at 90 years old, James Earl Jones no longer traveled. He really didn't do his scenes with any of the other actors. He shot his scenes in New York, and they put him in somehow digitally. It's pretty seamless the way that it happens, though. Now, during the production, Murphy took in a screening of Terminator Dark Fate in late 2019. He marveled at the de-aging technology that they used to make a younger Schwarzenegger, and that's when the light bulb came in over his head. He thought he could recreate himself as a younger Akeem in newly made flashbacks to show how he managed to conceive his son. Now, unfortunately, the scenes that were put into this film 
were the ones that met with the most backlash among some viewers who claim that it's kind of a, a tasteless date rape depiction that is not really funny, and it kind of overshadows a lot of the goodwill that the rest of the film is trying to provide. Now, this was shot at the new Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta. The cast and crew, they call that the nicest studio that they've ever worked in. In addition to a good deal of green screen work to shoot some of the Africa scenes, they also shot some of this on location in Rick Ross's own 45,000 square foot palatial 109 room mansion. This was a mansion that was formerly owned by Evander Holyfield. Rick Ross allowed them to dress the house however they liked in order to make their movie. The royal bedroom was Rick Ross's own bedroom, as was the palatial dining room that could seat up to 100 people. They even built a table for that dining room scene, and they let Rick Ross keep it. It's massive. Ross's 235-acre backyard was so expansive that it was also used for some of the outdoor scenes of African wildlife, although most of that is done with CG. Meta jokes also hit here from time to time, as you can imagine. For instance, Lavelle's lament about the state of Hollywood cinema as being not much more than superhero flicks and sequels nobody asked for. Obviously, that's a wink and a nudge to us in the audience about this film. Most of the action does take place in Zamunda, which does seem like an idealized African country with very broad stereotypes about living in the continent. Strange, though, the notion that American R&B and hip-hop acts like In Vogue and salt and Peppa and Gladys Knight would be so popular there, given that when we last visited, there seemed to be a real disconnect between Zamunda from a pop culture perspective and the United States. It seems to be much more blended here. Now, as far as how I feel about this film, I do think the original film is obviously going to be seen as far superior. If you're a fan, you're definitely not going to think this second film is going to replace that or is going to be better than that, not only because the original film had originality going for it, but it also had funnier fish-out-of-water moments, which are some of the best parts of that first film. It also had a very sweet romance at the center of it that was more developed, much more endearingly than the one they try to shoehorn in for the sequel. Now, Fowler here is kind of the co-star. Is He's energetic as Lavelle, but I don't think he's anywhere near as appealing than what we saw Eddie Murphy as in the original film. His character really lacks much dimension here. He's playing mostly try to get laughs, not necessarily trying to play anything well-rounded. And Lavelle's romantic notions of love with this royal barber named Marembe, it, it does have some appeal, but it just does not strike anywhere close to being as something we could root on as easily as we could with Akeem and Lisa from the first film. Leslie Jones and Tracy Morgan here, they they kind of steal the scenes that they're in. They deliver some pretty big laughs playing these characters that are essentially ready-made for their kind of rude personalities. Arsenio Hall, I think he has a lot more fun playing wilder characters under tons of makeup than he does playing Semi, yet again, who's kind of an afterthought. He doesn't get as much to do this time out in that character in the comedy department, but he does still contribute with some funny side characters. I do think that the film, its initial appeal starts to dissipate. It's kind of like chewing gum. It starts to lose its flavor, even though it gives you that burst at the beginning. Over time, as we start to try to get into the actual film, you know, once the reintroductions to those older characters are complete, we're left following these less appealing newcomers to try to go through the motions. I don't think it dips low enough in its lulls, and it does have lulls. 
I don't think it ever quite outstays its welcome if you're a big fan of this, but it does slow down in its momentum as we get into the second half, unfortunately. This film was originally slated for an August 7th, 2020 release, but then it got moved up to December 18th because of the COVID pandemic, and then it changed to a release not in theaters per se, although there are drive-ins and other places that are showing this in a theatrical format, but it did debut on Amazon Prime Video because Amazon Studios bought the worldwide film rights out from Paramount sometime back for $125 million. Now, I do think that if you're a fan of the original film, if you're a huge fan of Coming to America from 1988, I think you're going to see this sequel, Coming to America, as an amiable rehash reunion flick, much like a lot of the reunion flicks that have come out in recent years. You know, this movie is obviously made by people who have a lot of affection for its predecessor, and it's made for people knowingly who have affection for the predecessor. So it's going to give you as many of the same feels as it can. I mean, even characters that were barely in the first film, if they can be brought back here, they squeeze them in for you to be able to recognize. And in its way, it kind of is a celebration of a lot of American black comedy, comedians, music, and culture of the late 1980s and early 1990s that will also go down in a satisfying way if you're of age to remember that era. It also hits enough of the right notes of nostalgia, even if it lacks originality, but this film is probably mostly incomprehensible if you're trying to take it as a standalone film. So this makes it really difficult to try to grade because on the one hand, it probably is entertaining enough for people who love the first film, even though most people will probably think that it's not anywhere near as close to being as good from an objective standpoint. But it's also a very fun celebration of that original film, which is what it was trying to be. It's meant to be a fan film. You know, it's kind of like a popular band that breaks up sometime and then they get together for an album, you know, decades later. It's not going to be as good as the original stuff, but if you're a fan, you enjoy hearing them together one more time. And I think that that's exactly what Coming to America is. It's a movie getting everybody back together beyond the curtain call to deliver something that'll make you smile. And I do think that on that level, it achieves some success, enough for me to give it three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that Coming to America is a worthwhile film for people who like the original Coming to America. I think you should probably give it a shot. Don't expect it to be anywhere near as good, but you'll still probably smile at some of the antics. And if you already have Amazon Prime, you're probably not going to pay anything extra to see this film. So generally speaking, it is probably worth your money there to take in. I don't think anybody needs to pay for Amazon Prime just to be able to see this movie. But if you haven't and want to see it and you're a huge fan of Coming to America, give it a shot at the very least you'll probably have enough laughs and fun revisiting it, at least on a nostalgic level, one more time. So three stars out of four is what I give Coming to America. Now, I have not reviewed Coming to America on my podcast, but I do have a written review of it at my website. That's at quipster.net. If you want to read it, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. That's the original film, the 1988 film as well. Although I'll have a write-up for this new one from 2021 up there as well by the time you're listening to this. If you have your own thoughts on coming to America that you want to impart to me, you can reach me at my website. You can find my email address, links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. If you want to follow all of those, I do encourage you to do that. You can write to me anytime you like. 
That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Until next time, thank you so much for listening, and please enjoy your time. Anytime you are going to the movies or you're catching a movie meant to be out in the movie theaters streaming at home. <laughs>